Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So this week I have two short essays by Hilaire Belloc. The first, on pedants. The just and genial man will attempt to take pleasure in what surrounds him when it is capable of giving him amusement, always supposing that it does not move him to wrath. I mean that a man who is both just and companionable will rather laugh than turn sour at the discomforts of this world. For example, consider the pedant. Never was such an exasperating fellow, never was there a time when he ran riot as he does now. On which account many are bewildered, and many sad, they know not why, and many who know their time are soured. But a few, and I hope they may be an increasingly few, are neither bewildered nor saddened nor soured by this spectacle, but claim to be made merry, and are. What is a pedant? There are many fixed human types, and every one of them has a name. There is the priest, there is the merchant, there is the noble, and there is the pedant. Each of these types are known by a distinctive name, and to most men they call up a clear image. But because they are types of mankind, they are a little too complicated for definition. Nevertheless, I will have a try at the pedant. The essence of the pedant is twofold. First, that he takes his particular science for something universal. Second, that he holds with the grip of faith certain set phrases in that science, which he has been taught. I say, with a grip of faith, it is the only metaphor applicable. He has for these phrases a violent affection. Not only does he not question them, but he does not know that they have been questioned. When he repeats them, it is in a fixed and hierarchic voice. When they are denied, he does not answer, but he flies into a passion which, were he destined to an accession of power, might in the near future turn to persecution. Alas, that the noblest thing in man should be perverted to such a use. For faith, when it is exercised upon those unprovable things which are in tune with things provable, illuminates and throws into a right perspective everything we know the faith of the pedant. The pedant crept in upon the eclipse of our religion. His reign is therefore brief. Perhaps he is also but a reflection of that vast addition to material knowledge which glorified the last century. Perhaps it is the hurry and the rapidity of our declining time which makes it necessary for us to accept ready-made phrases and to act on rules of thumb, good or bad. Perhaps it is the whirlpool and turmoil of classes which has pitchforked into the power of the pedant whole groups of men who used to escape him. Perhaps it is the devil. Whatever it is, it is there. You see it more in England than in any other European country. It runs all through the fiber of our modern literature and our modern comment, like the strings of a cancer. Come, let us have a few examples. There is, quote-unquote, the Anglo-Saxon race. It does not exist. It is not there. It is no more than Baal or Moloch or the Philosopher's Stone or the Universal Mercury. There never was any such race. There were once hundreds and hundreds of years ago a certain number of people, how many we do not know, talking a local German dialect in what is now Hampshire and Berkshire. To this dialect, historians have been pleased to give the name of Anglo-Saxon, and that is all it means. If you pin your pedant down to clear expression, saying to him, Come now, fellow, out with it. What is this Anglo-Saxon race of yours? You find that he means a part, and part only, of such people in the world as habitually speak the English language or one of its dialects that are part only which in a muddy way he sympathizes with. 
that part which is more or less of his religion, and more or less conformable to his own despicable self. It does not include the Irish. It does not include the poor of the United States. But it does include a horde of Germans, and a mixed rabble of every origin under the sun sweating in the slums of the New World. Why then, you may ask, and you may well ask, does the man use the phrase Anglo-Saxon at all? The answer is simple. It smacks, or did originally smack, of learning. Among the innumerable factors of modern Europe, one and only one was the invasion of the eastern part of this island, and only the eastern part, by pirates from beyond the North Sea. The most of these pirates, but by no means all, belonged either to a loose conglomeration of tribes whom the Romans called Saxons, or to a little maritime tribe called Angles. True, the full knowledge of that event is a worthy subject of study. There is a good week's reading upon it in original authorities, and I can imagine a conscientious man who would read slowly and make notes, spending a fortnight upon the half-dozen contemporary sources of knowledge we possess upon these little barbarian peoples. But Lord, what a superstructure the pedant has raised upon that narrow base. Then there is alcohol. What alcohol does to the human body and the rest of it? To read the absurd fellows, one would imagine that this stuff, alcohol, was something you could see and handle, something with which humanity was familiar, like beef, oak, sand, chalk, and the rest. Not a bit of it. It does not exist any more than the Anglo-Saxon race exists. It is a chemical extraction, and in connection with it you have something very common to all such folly, to wit, gross insufficiency even in the line to which its pedantry is devoted. For this chemical abstraction of theirs may be expressed in many forms, and it is only in one of these forms that they mouth out their inter interminable and pretentious dogmas. Humanity, healthy European humanity, that is, the jolly place called Christendom, has drunk from immemorial time wine and beer and cider. It has been noticed, also from immemorial time, that if a man drank too much of any of these things, he got drunk, and that if he got drunk, often his health and capacity declined. There is the important fact which humanity has never missed, and without which the rhodomontades of the pedant would have no foothold. It is because he, his pretended knowledge relates to a real evil with which humanity is acquainted that people listen to him at all on the subject. He ill requites their confidence. He exploits and bamboozles them to the top of their bent. He terrifies the weak victims and the weaker witnesses of drunkenness and often, I am sorry to say, picks their pockets as well. I can call to mind as I write more than one pedant, who by harping on this word, alcohol, has got very considerable sums out of the public. Well, it is the public's fault. Volt de chipe et tower and a murrain on it, also a quincy. Then there is the fourth gospel. Your pedant never calls it the gospel of St. John, as his fathers have done before him for two thousand years. He must give it a pretentious name then, because it happens to be crammed full of Christian doctrine. He must deny its authenticity. There is not a vestige of proof against that authenticity, nor, for that matter, a vestige of sound historical proof in favor of it. Like everything else in the fundamental structure of the faith, from the Mass to the Apocalypse, it has for witness the tradition of the Church, and is no more acceptable as a historic document of the type of the Agricola or the Catile orations than any one of the other Gospels. There is not even an event mentioned in the whole of the New Testament which has true historic value. The whole thing depends upon belief, and belief in a corporate teaching body. Yet how your pedant has flourished upon this same fourth gospel. Now he is reverently accepting it, now reluctantly rejecting it. He fondles it as a cat does a mouse, and when you try to come to hand grips with him, he will first, taking you for a simple and unlearned man, put you off with silly technicalities. 
You have but to read up the meaning of these technicalities in the dictionary to find that he is talking through his hat. He has no evidence, and there can be no evidence, as to whether the gospel was or was not written by the traditional figure which the Catholic Church calls St. John, and all he has to say on the matter would not tempt the most gullible gambler to invest a penny on a ten-to-one chance. Then there is a conflict between religion and science. What the pedant really means when he uses that phrase, and he has not only used it threadbare, but has fed it by the ton to the recently enfranchised and to the vulgar in general, is a conflict between a mystical doctrine and everyday common sense. That conflict has always existed and always will exist. If you say to any man who has not heard of such a thing before, I will kill you and yet you will survive, or this water is not ordinary water, it does more than wash you or assuage your thirst, it will also cure blindness and make whole a diseased limb, the man who has not heard such things before will call you a liar. Of course he will, and small blame to him. We can only generalize from repeated experience, and oddities and transcendental things are not within the field of repeated experience. But science has nothing to do with that. The very fact that they use the word religion is enough to show the deplorable insufficiency of their minds. What religion? Your pedant is far too warped and hypocritical to say exactly what he means even in so simple a case, so he uses the word religion, a term which may apply to thugs with their doctrine of the sanctity of, of homicide, or to those losers at Lepanto who are not bound to any transcendental doctrine, but only to a rule of life, or to Buddhists who have but a philosophy, or to Plymouth Brethren, or to headhunters. I said at the beginning of this that the pedant was food for laughter rather than for anger. Humph. On the Use of Controversy by Hilaire Belloc of controversy it may be said, as of all other things under the sun, that men are divided into two kinds, those who like it and those who don't. But there is this difference about it that people either like it enormously or detest it like poison. Now why is this? I think it is because controversy involves real conflict. All men have in them an instinct for conflict, at least all healthy men. Indeed, as everybody knows, conflict is the mother of all things, and as we are part of all things, we may be excused for liking our mother. But though there is this instinct for conflict in all men, it is, in modern men, and particularly in us today, watered down until it often ceases to be conflict at all. You see that especially in the matter of games. Games are sham conflict. They are so sham that boys are particularly trained to avoid anger in games, and often grow up incapable of anger in real fighting. A game is necessarily restricted to quite artificial rules. One gains a victory in a game, but it is not a real victory. It is only the scoring of points according to those rules. Wherever there is real conflict, there is real victory on one side and real defeat on the other. Attempted, at the least and nearly always, real victory achieved or defeat suffered. So it is with controversy. The end of controversy is the establishment of truth. And he wins who has used such arguments and evidence that no reasonable man can deny his conclusions. He is victorious who convinces the impartial auditor in the long run. Of course, the victor in controversy for the moment is not necessarily the final victor. The Achille case is an example in point. Newman could not convince the court because the court was not open to conviction. But there is no doubt about posterity came to think about the matter. I think one may indulge the same conclusion about a modern issue in which we ought to have been the victorious side has failed for the moment. When time has softened the enthusiasms at work, one really does usually get a look in. You see that in the case of the diamond necklace, for instance, and it is true of a good many other historical debates, which were passionate in their day. They have been settled once and for all, and we owe that boon to controversy, for it is a boon to have both truth apparent and established. There is also this good th about controversy, that is, 
what few other forms of conflict have, and that it is a highly comic side. For one thing, men are always amusing when they lose their tempers. Anyhow, they are amusing in the eyes of those who suffer no consequences from their ill humor. Now it is in the nature of controversy to make men lose their tempers, by which quality it breeds quantities of fun. The thing has been expressed in the phrase, I don't know who first used it, Ille sclericatissimus, bruncius. Whoever bruncius may have been, perhaps he was a German called Brunk, I don't know, his opponent evidently got very excited and came to regard him as a sort of criminal for differing from him. Theological controversy is a fine breeding ground for this kind of thing, and especially theologic controversy based upon history. When the controversy merely turns upon an idea, as, for instance, whether the soul of man can be immortal, though men will get very heated, they can't appeal to obvious and material proof, so the man who won't be convinced remains unconvinced. That is, properly speaking, no victory in a conflict of that kind. I mean no strictly logical or experimental victory on the lines of deductive reasoning, or of experience. The other man can always declare himself unconvinced, but appeals to some theological point upon which historical evidence comes into court is quite another matter. There, people do indeed lose their tempers gloriously, and I fancy the reason is this, that the victorious side having appealed to fact, not principle or faith, is felt by his opponent to be hitting below the belt. I have often noticed how when something in dispute has been settled by the quotation of an indisputable text, the anger of the defeated is exceptional. It is though a man felt, I don't mind your making the gesture of hitting me and beating the air, but I do mind your beating me. A man says, for instance, that a particular doctrine was not yet received at a particular date because there is no manuscript evidence thereof. His opponent trots out manuscript evidence which the other hadn't heard of because it was discovered recently, and at once the fat is in the fire. Clinching evidence angers men so much that they will sometimes end by denying the obvious, rather than admit it. There was a controversy, some years ago, between a specialist in biology and a superficial amateur on a biological point, which was only indirectly theological, but sufficiently theological to rouse passion. The amateur said that a certain high authority had denied the descent of birds from reptiles. The specialist imprudently affirmed that the high authority had never said anything of the kind, for the specialist took it for granted that the wretched amateur could not know what he was talking about. Within that specialist's mind, the descent of birds from reptiles was as firm a dogma as the descent of Englishmen from Germans was to the Oxford of my youth. Then the amateur quoted the disputed passage, verbatim. It was simple, direct, emphatic. The high authority had emphatically denied the descent of birds from reptiles. In vain did the unfortunate amateur plead his own ignorance and say, I don't pretend to understand the evidence. I only know that this was what the high authority wrote. His opponent would not be comforted. He complained that the argument had been held in reserve and exploded under his feet like a landmine, without warning. This was indeed the case, but the complaint did not undo the force of the evidence. As for the modern contention that controversy leads nowhere, that no one is ever convinced by it, and so forth, surely it belongs to the general modern denial of the human reason. As the phrase goes, it has long been proved there is no such thing as proof. As a fact, a mere fact of history, nearly everything we hold to be truth, save what comes immediately from the evidence of our senses, has been established by controversy. One need not go so far as to say, as did a friend of mine some few years ago, I make men angry, and that is always a good thing. But one can say that controversy, violent in proportion to the importance of its matter, has decided truth perpetually in the past, and will continue to decide it for the future. Therefore, let all good controversialists take heart. Therefore, it is not wasted, even when they fail. For even when they fail, they have served as the anvil on which truth was forged. I use the word forged in no ambiguous sense. And if they have succeeded, why then they have been the hammer? 
so may all those who were upon my side in a controversy, and very willingly will I accord to the other side the highest anvil of honors.